Discovery Debrief is proud to announce a partnership with an all-new addition to the Star Trek gaming family. Star Trek Alien Domain Incursion takes you to explore the Gamma Quadrant on the other side of the Bajoran wormhole where you have the chance to join either the Federation or the Indigenous Dominion. It features a multitude of multiplayer modes, allowing you to put your fleet and strategy to the test against other like-minded explorers. Build, research, and fight your way to the top, all in the comfort of your own browser. If you're interested in getting a leg up on what the game has to offer, the Discovery Debrief crew is proud to announce that we're giving out free access keys worth approximately $60 each in in-game items. All you need to do to get one of these keys is to write a review for the show on iTunes or Google Podcasts and send us a screenshot or link to your review either through our Facebook or Twitter pages or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Send us your review and get a key worth $60 in in-game items in Star Trek Alien Domain Incursion. It's that simple. You can find this Star Trek strategy web game at incursion.gamesamba.com. That's incursion.gamesamba.com. Star Trek Alien Domain Incursion is officially licensed by CBS. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to new, ongoing Star Trek, and welcome back to the regular groove for Discovery Debrief, a podcast that dives headfirst into the proverbial deep end of the latest trek into the final frontier, Star Trek Discovery. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I'm joined by our bold, returning panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, including Rachel Clow. Hello. Zaki Hassan. Howdy. And Cicero Holmes. I don't want you to leave. <laughs> well, I, I, that was to Zaki. <laughs> it has been a long time since we've had Zaki on deck. Yes, but it's it's a homecoming in in I, more ways. I'm, than I'm starting to feel like the the special guest star. I'm like the Doctor Pulaski of this whole thing. <laughs> You're Reg. well that's either an upgrade or a demotion depending on what you think of both of those characters well you're a regular in our hearts regardless i appreciate that just just a busy guy it it's it's been busy but but i cannot very well miss out on the chance to talk about this friggin awesome episode which i'm i'm yes. giving away the game a little bit but yeah. no hey you're avoiding the agony booth that's great that's great news <laughs> <laughs> well it's been nearly a year since we last said goodbye to the crew of the starship discovery but arriving back at not a moment too soon is the all new second season of the first new Star Trek TV show to arrive since the end of Enterprise in the mid-2000s. When last we saw these characters, they went through a very tumultuous sequence of events and experiences, but survived an interstellar war and a perilous journey to a threatening alternate universe, much to Zaki's chagrin, to arrive (laughs) at a new beginning. On top of all of that, season one of Star Trek Discovery ended on a promise to show us exactly how its characters and setting would come to embrace the larger lore of the established Star Trek universe 
by incorporating Captain Christopher Pike and the iconic original USS Enterprise to leave us all with a sense of possibility. Now, though, the time for guessing is over. Season 2 is here, and I think I can speak for us all when I say that we can't wait to bring you a whole new season's worth of discussions and dives into the universe we all love so much. Of course, though, we'll ease into our news and episode discussions by talking about what everyone's been up to, how have you guys been engaging with Star Trek since we last recorded, besides, of course, prepping the second season premiere, but just in general, what have you guys been up to as we get back into the groove of recording again. Zachy, start us off. I have not been engaging with the Trek franchise of late. Um, and it's been, it's been kind of nice to, to have discovery be the thing like, Oh, okay. Now it's, it's time for Trek again. So mm-hmm. I've had, I've had a, a long, long layover. Yeah. Yeah. Very understandable. And uh, it's a pretty good way to usher in new activity. Now, do you see, potential for renewed engagement uh, extending from, I assume anyway, your pretty positive response to this episode? Well, you know, I, I rewatched The Cage uh, mm. right, right after this. And so, so that, that gives some inkling of, of where my head is at. And I, I, yeah. I out of uh, storage, I got the, the omnibus of um, the Star Trek early voyages comic book that Marvel did in the nineties. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm in, I'm in like a Captain Pike mood right now. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I don't blame you. I mean, I was, uh, I was actually, uh, listening back to the desperate hours audiobook because of the inclusion of Captain Pike and the enterprise. And I'm going to be interested to see if there's any crossover there going forward, but no, it's good to, it's good to know that you're in a Captain Pike state of mind. Uh, he definitely inspires as such, I think after seeing him in this episode, but we'll, we'll save that for a little bit. <laughs> Rachel. Um, I read the Tilly book. You did. Yeah. Oh. Uh, what's it? What's it called? Way to the stars. Way to the stars. Yeah. The Tilly book. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's good. It's like a YA book. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, I mean, it she's, kind she's of... a YA character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, I mean the, the book, well, it's, it starts, it might start like the, the, the bookends, I think actually start in season two of the show, but the, the story proper begins when she's a teenager. So that, that feeling is appropriate, I think. Yeah. I think, uh, um, so the, it's sort of bookended by the night before the, um, the, the pilot or the first episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. It's so right up. Right up against the second season. Pretty solid. Yeah. And you you enjoyed it. Now, I know that Tilly hasn't been your most favorite character. So did you see anything uh, in the book that gave you a renewed sense of appreciation for her? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel the same. Okay. I mean, which is positive. I like yeah. her. But um, yeah, I... Uh, you know, I liked her before, so mm-hmm. yeah. I can't say that it changed my opinion. Sure. Well, we'll we'll do a deep dive into that book at some point in the future because uh, it definitely warrants discussion. I think Cicero, my friend. Yes. Uh, oh, I thought you were going to say more stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So briefly. Oh, you know what I've been doing in Trek? I've been watching. Uh, the renewed adventures of uh, TNG in the form of the Orville. Uh, oh, yeah, I've been yeah. doing that too. 
So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So the Orville um, went from an oddity to a thing that made me cringe to a to a show that I genuinely love and appreciate for its reverence to Star Trek. I'm right mm-hmm. there with you, man. And and um, you know the the for all of the people that we you know all of the naysayers about this is not my trek when they talked about discovery their trek is alive and well in the orville um, sure. you know in in all of those serialized uh, or procedural basic basically stories that they they wind up having uh, mm-hmm. in in the orville but it's it's great they they actually had their own uh, Tyler moment with a character named Lieutenant Tyler, uh, which was which was pretty kind oh, of yeah. which That's is funny. which is pretty kind of crazy, uh, where they had a character that um, w- pretended to be human but actually was the their enemy. Uh, I forget what the enemy species is. The krill. The krill. That's right. Yes. And uh, yeah, all all to trick the captain Ed. Like I don't know his last name because all the all the crew calls him Ed. So, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so they had Mercer. Their, yes, yes, Ed, yes, Captain Mercer. Uh, so they they went ahead and had their own version of uh, uh, subterfuge and double agentry and all this other jazz. Uh, with Lieutenant Tyler. So I thought that was funny when it happened. I was like, Oh man. Um, but, but the show is great. So that's, that's my star Trek is, uh, the Orville. Yeah. The Orville is a big hit in this house too. Um, I I've been, you're absolutely right. It, it brings back the, the sort of done in one sing singularly episodic nature that was prevalent in the star Trek shows of the nineties and uh, I mean, there are production personnel that are involved, right. not the least of whom being uh, Brandon Braga is involved in bringing the Orville. Uh, and Jonathan uh, Frakes. And yeah, Jonathan, Jonathan Frakes, Frakes as, as a director. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, there, there's a lot to like there. Um, and I think, Cicero, you help prove that it need not be binary. You don't need huh. to choose one or the other. Oh, absolutely you, not. You can absolutely love both. And crazy talk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fun though. It's fun that, that you can see an example of uh, something that's rooted in Star Trek's past, but you also get to see on the same day, no less. Right. If you, you know, both both shows drop new episodes on Thursdays now, and you get to see the franchise's future. And well, and and you know, not just that. You know what? What I appreciate so much. First of all, th- you can tell. That Seth MacFarlane just adores the next generation. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. Right. Yes. And and I love the fact that he's at a point where he probably knows this is the most cachet I will ever have with this studio. Right. And he's able to be like, you know what I want to do? I want to do a, a giant next generation cosplay and I want you all to pay for it. <laughs> and it's like i mean think about that it's like that's one of those things where you say in your head like if i had a gazillion dollars i'd make my own star wars movie and star in it right yeah yeah <laughs> and that's, that's him he's like i want to be the captain of my own star trek ship right. and i want Ad- adrian Palicki to be my ex-wife right. 
Yeah, no, the, the, I mean, the point is, is definitely well taken. It's it, and it's just a good show. I mean, it started, yeah. I think there was definitely like in the early going of it, confusing messaging about what exactly it was like, yeah. is it going to be a raunchy Star Trek? And it has raunchy elements of the humor, but they're very light compared with sort of the ideas that it wants to push forward, which is very much in sort of a, a TNG mold, which I really appreciate. But I, I mean, I laughed out loud when a porn virus screwed up the entire computer system. <laughs> you know that would happen, it, though. It, pro- it like... probably would. It probably would. Yeah. But uh, no, the Orville's great. Um, that's also been a part of what I've been up to. But uh, mostly just taking in the back catalog of Trek when I can. Um, reading some. I, I've, I've finished out the Boldly Go series that IDW was publishing for a while, and it's no longer being published anymore. But that was a great series. But I, yeah, I, I, it's hard to say where the t- the Kelvin timeline is going to go in any medium now. Uh, there's the, apparently comics aren't even reliable to continue it anymore. So I think we're sad. done. I think I think that era is over, and I and I I raise a glass for it. Yeah. Hey, uh, uh, and you know, Alex Kurtzman, I think in a, in an interview related to the, I think it was on the red carpet for discovery, even if I'm remembering correctly, but he alluded to the idea that those movies were right for that time. And maybe if they're done, then they're done. Uh, but you know, it's interesting that the, the franchise is kind of up in the air when it comes to where it could go in the movies, but at least unlike the last time it was up in the air, we have, uh, we have an aim on television again, right. which I can't complain about. You know, a, a friend of mine pointed this out, and it's just a, an amusing observation or a depressing observation, but how the three Kelvin movies coincide exactly with the Obama presidency. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> first year, last year, I mean, it's like it came in with Obama and it left with Obama, you know? That is kind of yeah. depressing. Now that you- <laughs> and, <laughs> and so did Hope. and with that (laughs) uh well we do have uh some news items that we want to talk about before we get into our episode discussion proper so let's do that first So first up, in a discussion with The Hollywood Reporter, series showrunner Alex Kurtzman talked about the larger theme of faith that will be prevalent in Star Trek Discovery's second season. Specifically, he said, quote, Initially, it started as a conversation about the way in which Trek has dealt with the issue of faith versus science. In the original series, religion doesn't exist, yet faith is something that has always been a major topic in different ways. The idea of this mystery that has no answer immediately suggests a presence or force greater than anything anyone has ever known. It was really intriguing to us, end quote. Now, obviously, we'll dive into our more specific thoughts when it comes to our first glimpse of the so-called Red Angel, but I thought Kurtzman's quote here brought up an interesting talking point. How effective do you guys think that Star Trek has been in discussing the importance of faith to the human condition in the past? And adding on to that, what ways do you think that question is ripe for exploration in the future. Rachel. Yeah. I'm just <laughs> bored. That sounds boring. Why? Because <laughs> I don't care. You love Deep Space Nine, and that was a core theme of that show. Yeah. It's been done. Has it been done? The- <sighs> 
has it been done so completely that there's nothing left to it's explore just, with I it? don't I don't I don't th- I think it's sort of something that exploring is very interesting because I think people have their own minds about it. Yeah. And they don't really want to change right i don't no but i mean faith regardless of its source whether you're talking about a faith in a god or faith in people or belief system is is integral to a person's constitution no pun intended (laughs) okay so so i mean just that sheer fact is not enough to at least intrigue you in the possibility i don't know faith and science are not in opposition to one another true so i don't know just even the terminology faith versus science is but we don't know where what the conclusion is going to be that the show ultimately takes at the end of the season maybe it could come to that conclusion okay that would be nice see this is what happens when you talk to you talk about this with a very strict scientist who is agnostic at best uh, and who, who doesn't uh doesn't... but there are very religious scientists that i know yeah sure like so that has nothing to do but with you it. are not it's one just, of them no but it's <laughs> like i don't think that you you certainly don't have to make a choice with that and i think that the idea that you have to reject certain parts of science if you're going to be a person of faith is a it gives faith very little credit mm-hmm um because you you know the so if the show makes you pick one then you're going to be disappointed yeah okay and it's just i don't i i guess it depends on whether it makes me think these things tend to be so simplistic is a problem is that i just find them dull because it's like some of the like basic philosophy 101 like well i know that you were and and it's just like okay when it comes to this franchise i know that you were disappointed that it basically turned that conflict into something physical at the end of deep space nine yeah i don't like the end of deep space nine yeah you thought you thought it got weird yeah 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 definitely i don't know maybe you guys feel differently about that zachy what do you think about this you know, I mean, I'm I'm willing to give it a shot, but I mean, it, it the problem uh, generally is when you pose these type of questions is that the questions are, uh, you know, have a long life, but the answers don't. Right? There's no way to answer them in a satisfying way. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, it, it reminds me of like uh, Shatner being like, oh, we're going to have the Enterprise meet God, you know, and then, and Harv Bennett's critique of that was, well, the problem with that log line is the, the solution is in the thing. You're like, you like, you know, as a viewer, well, they're not, they're not going to answer. They're not going to actually meet God. Mm-hmm. Right. And to me, that's, that's the, 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 that's why I'm, I'm. I'm not skeptical, but I'm like, well, let's see what they come up with. Because yeah, sure, the the questions are eternal. You know, I I, I would agree with Rachel that I think uh, the notion of of it of of science v faith being the framework through which we use the universe is is uh, to some extent a false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I'm curious. You know, I mean, Gene Roddenberry created an a religious universe, right? right. And by design, because he was not a person of faith, as far as my understanding. Um, however, I think 
the notion that in 300 years, people will suddenly no longer be religious sort of flies in the face of human history. So to some extent, Star Trek, like that's like one of the main fantasies in the science, in the Star Trek universe. Right. Right. So, so when it, uh, I appreciate that they're, they're sort of acknowledging that, well, this is a thing that's part of the human experience and it needs to be dealt with. But again, it's like, how are they going to deal with it? That's what I'm curious to see. Yeah. Captain Picard was even openly hostile to the idea of placing blind faith in a deity several times right. in, over the right. course of the next generation. Uh, how well did you think, or how well didn't you think Deep Space Nine handled these questions over the course of its entire run? I think Deep Space Nine dealt with it with a degree of nuance that I appreciated. Yeah, I mean, you know, th- there's, you know, for example, Who Watches the Watchers in the Next Generation, which I love. It's a great episode, but it is that sense of like, oh, we've we've left behind this kind of stone age thinking, you know, mm-hmm. uh, very sort of. There's a colonial mindset to it. Whereas what Deep Space Nine presents is, I think, a more more educated way of saying, well, what can I learn from from this thing that I don't know? And we see Captain Sisko, you know, he he's initially reticent to be viewed as the emissary, but he it that identity gives him more than it takes away from. Him. I mean, he he becomes a richer person by virtue of his his love and appreciation of Bajoran religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, very true. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with you, Cicero. What do you think about this uh, this question, and what other ideas sort of come up in your head when it comes to Star Trek specifically, trying to present them, answer them, uh, or even just deliberate about them? Well, uh, Chris, so I think about two things that that have been discussed, and 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 specifically one thing that you said, uh, and the thing that you said that that really. Uh, kind of stuck with me was their interpretation of faith. And we are kind of taking it for granted that faith will always mean religious. It, it, you know, there is some, some, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, religious faith mm-hmm. is, is the, is the thing that we're, that we're really thinking about automatically when you think of faith. Um, but it could be faith in teammates, um, faith in your society, you know, faith in in uh, the 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 dogma that is whatever the belief system, you know, the belief system of Starfleet and the and the UFP um, mm-hmm. that that could be it. But it could also be faith. And, you know, what's interesting about Star Trek is that faith didn't really become a or, or religion didn't become a thing until they invited uh until klingons were on the bridge sure of of uh because it, you know even the we we knew that klingons were religious but we always considered them barbarians and the and the other thing to think about is that uh religion within the confines of of uh star trek historically uh the not even secularism secularism uh it's more it's more like kind of atheism at this mm-hmm. unified atheism uh is only observed by western civilizations even in a global world it's only observed by western civilizations uh i.e white people mm-hmm. um and and Case in point, Chakotay fully embraced 
his his Native American side and their religious beliefs. Sure. Uh, and uh, and, you know, all of the alien species that were aboard any of the ships were f- were uh, fully able to celebrate their deities and their customs. And and we spent a lot of time learning and discovering those things over the course of, you know, many different series over many different seasons. But Judeo-Christian uh, religion, Western religion, basically we've, we've been told that we're, we've grown beyond that. And everyone else, by, by virtue of the fact that they have not, they have these goofy things that they believe in are are i don't you know i don't want to say that but but are i guess viewed as less than mm-hmm. you know it's a little bit like a noble savage kind of thing right right, right? Mm-hmm. yes where it's like well the white people should know better right <laughs> yeah that's a interesting point mm-hmm. no that's very well very well articulated um i mean i don't really have I guess when I, when I think about this question as it's posed uh, in terms of discovery, well, I mean, you can go back and you can look at other depictions of religious faith throughout the franchise. And I think Star Trek pretty fairly runs the gamut of perspectives. Like there's the more outwardly hostile that Captain Picard exhibited that he thought uh, stunted a, uh, a society's advancement. But then within that same show, you also see uh, religious faith become a source of, of true inner strength for Worf. Uh, right. and, and that was a very positive depiction about right. what that added to his life and what he tried to, to pass on to his son and Absolutely. how it helped to form his own identity, right. even when he didn't grow up among other Klingons. Klingon uh, religion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, Cicero, you mentioned the the closeness that that had to Chakotay's character, which I think is important. Obviously, you have Major Kira, right. who, you know, the the actual organization that housed the Bajoran religion was shown to be at times corrupt and opportunistic, but it never really indicted the the larger swath of the Bajoran people who believed in in the prophets. Uh, so that brings up a very relevant conversation about what those kinds of institutions can do to a society. But then you look at discovery and really the only major sort of depiction of religion on the show that we've seen was through Takuvma. And it, it paints a very interesting right. perspective when you look at right. the trajectory that the Klingon faith uh, apparently goes to from Takuvma to the, the 24th century when Worf was a was a, um, a, a practicing believer in Kalis. And uh, in those early episodes of Discovery, when you know we were learning about the ideals that the followers of Takuvma had, it wasn't a particularly positive image because it was a radicalized form of religion that gave rise to a xenophobic and nationalistic, if you want to call it that, more like planetistic. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, offshoot of of um of chronos and i think there's a lot of room for discovery to explore the other side of that if the sort of religious aspect is what they're going for but either way 
because of the importance of any kind of faith to the human condition and the human experience, the human adventure, as Star Trek might say, there is a, there's a lot of room here that I think uh, we can't completely anticipate. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it, uh, how it unfolds over the course of the show. Any final thoughts on this topic? I, I will. I will just say that um, I was thoroughly enjoying the repartee between yourself and Rachel. Um, <laughs> I, if you guys made that a podcast, I would listen to that. All the time. Just record our arguments around yes. the house. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, some of them would be more interesting than others. <laughs> I think that's pretty fair to say. You know, you got to have a couple of very special episodes. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, the next news item, it's more just, it's not really a, a topic of deliberation. It's just something that I wanted to point out. Uh, one of the ways that I was happy to see this first episode of season two embrace Star Trek's lineage was in an Easter egg on Captain Pike's service record, which made mention of the Okuda Award. Michael and Denise Okuda are, of course, two very important behind the scenes Star Trek personnel who worked in various capacities on the 90s TV shows and movies. But they also helped co-write the incredible Star Trek Encyclopedia, which for all intents and purposes when I was a kid was my Bible, even when I was going to confirmation classes in a Lutheran church. So I was really, really happy to see them get that nod. Zachy, what do you uh, – I don't know if you follow the Okudas on a regular basis, but you've got to have a perspective on what they bring to the franchise in general. Oh yeah, I mean, gosh, like when when I think about uh, the '90s, kind of the 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 that era in the '90s, pre-memory alpha, yeah, you know, online and stuff. I mean, everything uh, that we got as fans that was sort of official was shaped by the Akuta. So the the encyclopedia and the chronology and all. I mean, I I. I don't even remember how many times I checked out the the Star Trek chronology from my high school library, uh, and just appreciating the 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 level of of nerdery that yeah. went into making this thing cohere. You know, and I remember reading about how the entire chronology was built on the mention in the uh, the neutral zone episode of Next Generation. It was the first time where there was an actual date. Ah, yeah, and. Every single thing front and back was basically built out from that single date. And I just remember being so fascinated by that, you know? That's that's incredible. And of course, it just speaks to the attention to detail that uh, that they brought to the equation. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I would just refer to the Star Trek encyclopedia just on a whim to find out everything that I possibly could about this shared world that I love so much. And in many ways, that was one of the best teachers of uh of absorbing something uh productively in a world of fit even though it wasn't probably particularly productive for my schoolwork necessarily <laughs> right. uh, the star trek encyclopedia did help give me a sense of uh of understanding just how information and history works weirdly enough i mean i was exposed to it that early and uh and i, I so i was just really happy to see the okudas get a nod here it was really, really cool um, one other thing I wanted to mention that is not on the outline that's in front of you guys right now. Uh, Trek movie had a report that says CBS all access had a record breaking weekend fueled by star Trek Discovery's second season premiere. Uh, they announced that the season premiere, uh, and the AFC championship game drove a record breaking weekend for CBS all access. So according to CBS, 
All Access added more subscribers in a single weekend than ever before, eclipsing the previous record set during the 2017 series premiere for Discovery by 72%. Wow. Uh, in addition, the weekend also set a new record for unique viewers. Uh, so really, and um, Trek Movies Report, uh, they they include some some graphs from Parrot Analytics that shows other um, other popular streaming shows on different services. Interestingly enough, the most wanted digital originals in the United States across all streaming platforms is actually led by DC Universe with Titans and Young Justice, followed by uh, Stranger Things, then You on Netflix, and then Star Trek Discovery. So it's up there. It's above Narcos, what? Black Mirror. It's above The Punisher. It's above The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And it's above Daredevil. So Star Trek Discovery seems to be doing uh, CBS All All Access a whole lot of favors. Uh, Guys, as we are now into season two, and we can now review sort of uh, the long-lived perspective that we've all had with the service, what's your perspective on the value that you gleaned from uh, CBS All Access that's, of course, driven by getting access to Star Trek? Cicero? Well, I told you guys before, um, there were already things, uh, there was already a reason for me to uh, have this service. Um, I am, me and my partner are huge Big Brother fans. (laughs) So uh, when Big Brother is on uh, they have access to live feeds. So you can watch these people like they're animals in a zoo. (laughs) 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, and, and so you have, you have unfettered access to them uh, via CBS All Access. So if it weren't for Star Trek, uh, if it weren't for Discovery, I wouldn't have purchased the service. But mm-hmm. I, I keep the service because I can watch, uh, I can watch people. Yeah, I remember you said that, you said a while ago that you were thinking of going to the annual plan. Is that yeah. something that you did? I did not. I have not done it yet. I probably like. I'll probably just do it. You know. Well, I mean, we got we got a lot to look forward to. I yeah, think. yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it's just it, I just got to make sure that I don't do it the same month that I'm that my uh, Prime subscription is up. Yeah, no so, kidding. Netflix, yeah. Amazon, oh, CBS, DC, yeah. we're not made of money. Oh this stuff God. is going to, there's going to be a balloon that pops pretty soon, I think, when it comes to this stuff. But time will tell. Zachy, uh, now that you've had more time with CBS All Access, what do you make of, of the service sort of in the off season now that we prepare for more Star Trek? I mean, it's it's good to have uh, access to to so much content. I, I have to be honest; I pretty much only use it for uh, the new stuff. Sure. You know, I, you know, uh, um, I, you guys know I'm I'm big into Hawaii Five O, but I watch that through Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, as more and more content that I'm interested in increases, well, I mean, the the value speaks for itself. I mean, you know, I said this before: like, if you're a Star Trek fan. Well, you paying a couple bucks a month to get new Star Trek content, the way people be complaining online, like, like is some punishment from on high. It's like, <laughs> if you like Star Trek, like, you know what I mean? Like people spend more per month on comic books and yeah. stuff. Yep. Guilty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that that's well said. Rachel, uh, you've been pretty critical of our continued patronage of CBS <laughs> All Access. Uh I know that we didn't really use it much in the off season, but now that we're on the cusp of, you know, we have Picard coming, we have the Twilight Zone coming in particular. What are your feelings? I would on? like it if they added some more content. 
I mean, maybe just to get my money's worth, I'm going to have to start watching all of NCIS. Oh, good God, no. <laughs> there, there are, uh, and you know, I don't want to sound like a shill for CBS All Access, um, but there are some shows on CBS All Access that are worth checking out. There is a remake of a uh, an Australian series that is uh, two cops on a stakeout. And it's starring, oh, crap, I can't think of who it is, but it's two cops on a stakeout. And basically, they just ad-lib the entire thing. And the entire series takes place on with these cops on a stakeout. Hmm. And, like, that's all they're doing. Uh, nothing ever really happens. <laughs> um, so, like, you're sitting around and you're trying to figure out what's happening. It's a very weird comedy um but that's exactly what it's supposed to be sure well hey so, i mean whatever whatever can add that kind of value is is fine with me i'm uh i'm generally fine with cbs all access but i've always looked at it as sort of a future kind of investment sure. as we get more star trek and as uh as twilight zone gets a little bit closer that's supposed to be later this year so uh so i'm i'm interested to see what else they roll out most definitely um, let's see. One last news item before we dive into our episode discussion is that IDW Publishing, who've released a plethora of great Star Trek comics since first picking up the license in 2007, will be publishing a new series called Star Trek Year Five, aiming to give us a look at the final year of the Enterprise's five-year mission under Captain Kirk. The synopsis reads, quote, as Starfleet's flagship returns home, the series will investigate how each member of the iconic crew feels about the uncertain future that awaits them as they reach Earth. No word yet on a release date, but it's nice to have some new adventures of the classic crew to look forward to. Zaki is another guy who's uh, patronized Star Trek comics. Uh, what do you think of, of this just as a concept? Obviously, it's been explored in other places and even in other comics, but is this something that interests you at all? I mean, I, I, in a, you know, on a, in a peripheral sense, I'm interested, but as you say, I mean, it's, it's like, we've done this before. We've done it a few times, Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, and I don't mind, I mean, it's cool, but uh, you know, I, I think, I think the, to some extent, one problem I've always had with, with, uh, licensed fiction specifically about the original crew era is that it, it's all kind of frozen in amber you know like right. the, there's it's it doesn't really count quote unquote and it's just it's there so it's like well you know as i've gotten older i find i'm just less interested in reading novels set in that era or comics set in that era yeah, yeah i agree with you i mean um idw did uh, it's been a while now gosh since 2019 but back in 2008 they did a series called year four Year four, that, yeah. uh, incorporated some aspects of the animated series. And I think DC Fontana had a hand in writing it. That's right. But, uh, yeah. it just kind of fell by the wayside. It wasn't, uh, I don't, I don't even really remember any, any particulars about the stories told in, in those issues. So yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I'll probably pick up the first one to give it a shot, but, um, my, my expectations are generally kind of low, even though, I do like most of IDW's recent Star Trek output specifically. Their Discovery stuff has been great. Uh, but we will, as in all things, we will see. Now, though, it's time. Guys, let's begin our discussion of Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 1, Brother. Brother. 
Now, just in case you guys have forgotten, the way that we usually do this is I will read portions of the episode's plot, and we will then discuss uh, as as we go through different aspects of the plot. We'll sort of segment the the story of each episode out and discuss sort of in the middle. That's how we've done things before. As a reminder, uh, Discovery Debrief is meant as a supplement to the watching experience, not a replacement of the watching experience. So uh, if you have not already watched Brother, then please do so before you listen to this discussion. Otherwise, you'll be spoiled to hell and back. Anyway, now that that's out of the way, Beginning years before the primary events of the episode, we flash back to young Michael Burnham's arrival at the home of Ambassador Sarek and Amanda Grayson on Vulcan. Young Michael is intrigued by the only other child in the house, Sarek and Amanda's son, Spock. When Michael is introduced to Spock by his parents, the young Vulcan conjures up a terrifying holographic drawing he made before slamming the door in her face. So there's very little here, I think, for us to grab onto and pick apart. I think the best way to approach the early going of the episode here is just to ask you guys a simple question. With everything we know concerning Michael's past and Spock's turbulent childhood and how uh, the relationships that both of them have with Sarek, which are very, very different, surprisingly so, in fact, how did the confluence of all these things make you feel when you just watched this episode for the first time? Zaki, you know um, uh, an immense number of details about Spock in his early life. You've watched Michael from the beginning of this show. How did this all come together in this scene for you? I, I you know, I really like it. I, you know, pe- people uh, have been critical of this sort of continuity implant, where oh my gosh, here's Spock's sister that we never heard about. But you know, I don't, I haven't seen anything thus far that really trips up anything we've known about Spock thus far. And I, I, I really think uh, it's, it's a smart idea to have Michael so intimately tied in with Spock because it gives us kind of a shorthand because we already know Sarek. We already know Amanda. Mm-hmm. And so by ver- when you say, oh, she was raised by Sarek and Amanda, you get a sense of what her upbringing was like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's something that, to be honest, I wish they had leaned into it a little bit more earlier on because I think uh, it would have given us a sense, you know, earlier in exactly who she is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. Cicero, how did this all come together for you here in the beginning? Well, uh, I would say first and foremost, um, I think one thing that you missed is that uh, Michael Burnham uttered four little words. That mean so much. Space, the final frontier. Very true. And, that is absolutely fair. And uh, th- that that moment for me was like I had chills. Like, oh, holy Vulking Spock! We're about to, <laughs> we're about to, you know, we're about to get it on. She is officially, you know, stamped her place in in Star Trek lore, uh, Star Trek. Uh, as a television series, uh, once you said that, you're you're in. You're in the fraternity yeah. now, um, and so now Michael Burnham's part of that fraternity, and that's that's amazing. Yes, um, and uh, so outside of that, the, the relationship between uh, Spock and and Burnham, 
we'll see where that goes. I've got some thoughts. Uh, I'm not sure if I want to share them, uh, okay. but, but, but uh, like at least from the beginning, I agree with Zachy. It, the, the fact that they tied her, tied her into uh, Sarek and Amanda's family, um, made her, made some of her background instantly more intriguing and relatable for for us as longtime fans. Excellent. Yes, definitely agree, Rachel. I mean, I was a little kind of anxious because I anticipated what was going to happen. I was like, he's not going to be cool with it. It's going to be difficult. Spock seems like he would be a difficult child. (laughs) It was a very tumultuous childhood. Yeah. Yeah. So I I don't know. Like, I I don't have anything more intelligent to say than that. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) You don't need to apologize (laughs) if that's how you felt. No, I mean, um, I certainly can't. Spock is obviously an an extraordinarily important character to the larger franchise, but he is a very important character to me. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to be looking at anything that adds to his history, uh, very, very closely. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what Zachy said is absolutely true. This doesn't step on the toes of anything we know that stuff. I mean, really the, the, point in time that discovery is going to be playing with because we know that more substantive appearances of spock are coming uh but really that the the time period leaves plenty of room for us to learn more about the the man that spock will become and uh perhaps we'll even see experiences that might inform what his character was like later in life uh so i'm really interested to see how Spock is going to be leveraged in in this season. But really with this, it was very consistent with what I understand Spock's tumultuous early life to be. Uh, we never got the sense that he uh, didn't resent his father. Uh, this early of an age, there might be some questions about why he feels the way that he does. Uh, but Sarek has always been very strict with Spock from what we understand. I mean, even uh, I think the earliest perspective that we might have is even, you know, just from a firsthand source when Sarek was describing to Captain Picard the ways that Spock would behave as a child. And he didn't say that Spock was very well behaved. Uh, so this is pretty consistent with what we know. And I'll be interested to see exactly how that is shaped going forward. So let's move along with the plot. En route to the planet Vulcan to pick up its new captain following the betrayal of Gabriel Lorca during the Federation Klingon War, the USS Discovery receives a distress call from the USS Enterprise. Captain Christopher Pike takes emergency command of the Discovery and explains that the Enterprise was investigating seven mysterious signals when it was catastrophically damaged. All but one of the signals have disappeared, and after establishing himself as a very different flavor of commanding officer from the conniving Lorca, Pike orders Discovery to leave the Enterprise behind and head towards the only remaining red burst signal. So the time has finally come. We get our first substantive look at Anson Mount's portrayal of Captain Christopher Pike, and he decides to use his introduction as a moment of reassurance that he is not going to be anything like the ship's previous commander. 
Guys, what do you think of Anson Mount's Pike? And how do you think he sets the tone for the Starfleet side of things this season as we go further? Cicero, Captain Pike, how does he strike you here? Anson Mount. <laughs> uh, can can you like? Is there a gif of me propped up on a on a bed, kicking my heels up, staring <laughs> lovingly up at the at the screen? <laughs> um, man, it was it was so good. It was yeah. it was so good immediately. Like from word one, it was just perfect. Uh, yeah. You know, all of the doubts that you that you may have had about, uh, uh, who, you know, picking one actor over another or if Anson Mount is the right guy or what, you know, just oozing with charisma. Uh, it, and it really shows, really goes to show what, how, how much was lost uh, in the in the horrible inhumans, uh, I'm glad he was able to to salvage <laughs> his career from that turd. Oh my gosh, um, it, it was it just just fantastic. Oh man, I, I'm so fanboying over over uh, over Captain Pike and Anson Mount's uh, portrayal. But but I'm nervous, y'all. I'm sorry. Um, oh. This 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 show has. Uh, they they have done it to me. I, it was just a little too convenient that uh, you know that Captain Pike was around. Like I want to believe that it's Captain Pike, but I, I just think that it's like uh, it's mirror positive mirror universe Captain Pike. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like there's positive the positive universe, uh, positive mirror universe. That's a good place. Uh, where prime is the medium place and, and regular mirror universe is the bad place. Um, I just, he's, he was like, he was everything. He was like, he was uh roguish. He was charming. He was personable. Um, he, he was, he, he was in command and approachable all at the same time. Yeah. Authoritative and approachable at the same time. It, it was fantastic. Very well said. Rachel, you, uh, you've you had a lot of thoughts about Anson Mount over the last several months. What are my thoughts? Well, he's, <laughs> super, he's, he's a super handsome man. That he is, yeah, Chris. But, that he is. I mean, you know you know Captain Pike. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of Anson Mount as Captain Pike? Um, yeah, so like I was super brief with my last answer because I don't want to talk about any of that crap. I just want to talk about Captain Pike okay. for like an hour. <laughs> oh. Okay, go for it. He's so great. Yeah. And he's so folksy. Like he's got all his like folksy wisdom. <laughs> like thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's starship. <laughs> it it was fantastic he just he makes you feel so good i'm so glad like mommy discovery has married a new stepdad (laughs) a new dad and he's (laughs) he's really nice yeah he calls us all sport right (laughs) it seems like he would call you sport (laughs) and like play baseball with you yeah excellent very positive impression here Zachy, you're on a Captain Pike kick, so to speak. So how did you take in this new performance? 
Well, first of all, I, as soon as I heard he had been cast, I was like, oh my gosh, perfect. Because, yes, The Inhumans was not a great show. And yes, Anton Mount did not say much or anything on that show. But he was so good even when like just his presence was such that I was like, he's got the look, he's got the persona. And, and he was great on Hell on Wheels, mm. too. Uh, I think I think what's what's so kind of brilliant is that if if you're you know if you're a a, a a deep diving star trek fan which this show is to some extent aimed at then the the mere presence of captain pike carries with it uh you know an an ominous sense of foreboding because you know what is going to happen to him mm-hmm. and i think the genius of how how easily Anson Mount just slips into the role and becomes so likable and so charismatic and just somebody you want to follow is that it it his performance is so good that it reaches back in time and makes the menagerie even more heartbreaking. Oh, sure. And I think that's the genius of what he accomplished mm-hmm. here. Yeah, um there's there's not a whole lot I can I can add to that. I just uh the, I think the thing that comes to my mind immediately, particularly in the way that Captain Pike establishes himself with Discovery's crew, it, of all things, it reminded me of a moment in, I think it was Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix in the book, uh, where there's there's a big battle between the, the good wizards and the evil wizards, I think, in the, in the bowels of the ministry, if I'm remembering correctly. And... All is apparently lost, but then Dumbledore shows up and I'll never forget just reading in all italics, Harry's thoughts was, we are saved. And that's what comes to my mind with Captain Pike here, because the crew has been through so much. They've been betrayed. Uh, It was not a moment of... I guess, deconstruction of their philosophies. If anything, it reinforced it. But now they're given a chance to uh, to work with a commander who shares their value sets. Doesn't hurt that he's one of the most decorated captains in Starfleet. And he's he is a firm but reassuring presence. You know, I mean, he, he gets a little pissed off in this episode when he thinks that the crew is coming up with excuses not to do something, but it comes from a place of genuine care and concern that a good captain is supposed to have. And, uh, and, and I think that's what predominantly comes to my mind when I think at least of the earliest appearance of Captain Pike in this episode is they are saved. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how that shapes up going forward. Uh, before before we move on, I have a question for everyone. Um, is Anson Mount's portrayal of Captain Pike the definitive Captain Pike for you now, uh, Zachy? That's a really good question. I I think if only because in just one episode he's logged more right. screen time than than Bruce Greenwood, and and in one more episode he'll have logged more screen time than Jeffrey Hunter. Uh, yeah, you know, in, in in terms of volume, he's he's gonna he's gonna lap right. everybody else, <laughs> but but I don't think he's doing something that's that different. I mean, it's both what Bruce Greenwood did and Jeffrey Hunter did are woven into what Anson Mount is doing here. So it it I, I have no problem believing that this is the same man who is in the cage. Sure, 
know? yeah I, I i agree with that i mean the cage was kind of a well it was clearly an important moment in pike's life and it got him a little pissed off i think it's fair to say i mean it said i think there was more than one moment in the cage where he literally said the the phrase tear your head off but uh <laughs> but no i mean it, it certainly has that potential i don't know if it's there yet mm. but i can definitely see how it could get there rachel well in the in the cage doesn't he at one point say he doesn't like having a woman on the bridge or something like that yeah, he says that to number one, though. Yeah. So per, I'm assuming they've made some modifications to his character <laughs> to reflect the fact that women are allowed in professional spaces. Um, this this brings up when we had the conversation uh, related to the book, though. You were asking me about why the cage wasn't picked up. And one of the reasons was that NBC executives were uneasy about a woman second in command of the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. It's just times they are a changing, you know. <laughs> it yeah, only took well, fifty I... years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a whole rabbit hole. But yeah, I mean the the mid mid century was a particularly um, repressive time for women in the workplace. So I, I you know I don't begrudge anybody. Mm-hmm. whatever you were wrong yeah <laughs> um but yeah I, i'm assuming that you know they've they've modified his character so it doesn't have that part of it so I, I, to me like i see a lot more of the um kelvin timeline pike in anson mount's performance than jeffrey hunter mm-hmm. um but that's fine with me we got a lot of time left with him. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, maybe when he's more grumpy or depressed, he's more like Jeffrey Hunter. Maybe. Yeah. We will see. Good question, Cicero. Oh, thanks. I learned by watching you. Oh, <laughs> oh now. Uh, all right. Well, moving along with the plot, after an interaction between Commander Stamets and Ensign Tilly, in which Stamets reveals he'll be leaving Discovery for a new teaching endeavor on Vulcan, Discovery arrives at the Burst's location and finds nothing. It's gone. In its place, they find the wreckage of the USS Hiawatha, which went missing during the war on an asteroid made of non-baryonic matter. Tilly asks Burnham for a sample of the asteroid due to its interactions with the ship's spores before Burnham joins Captain Pike, Commander Nan, and Lieutenant Connolly, all having come to discovery from the Enterprise, as they attempt to traverse a dangerous planetary asteroid field in order to board the Hiawatha and save the Starfleet personnel that could be trapped inside. Against Burnham's warnings, Connolly performs maneuvers that are too dangerous since he's relying on sensor information, and his refusal to heed Burnham's advice causes him to crash into an asteroid fragment and die instantly. Well, what a twist! (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) What a paradigm twist. The blue shirt ate it in the episode. I don't think many people were really crying about it, though, considering what we saw from (laughs) (laughs) I was like, when he was on screen, I was like, why is this guy such an asshole? And then as soon as he was in danger, I was like, oh. Uh, (laughs) 
Well, uh, I thought that it was uh, just the interaction was interesting. What did you guys make of it, particularly in the way that it subverted a popular franchise expectation? I mean, it, it seemed like they were kind of telegraphing the idea that Commander Non would be at risk, but that didn't happen. But what did you make of uh, of the just maybe the, even just the message that Lieutenant Connolly did not heed the advice of Commander Burnham and it resulted in him kicking it? Cicero? Well, um, uh, first, first and foremost, if you don't listen to your hero, right? You know, <laughs> if if they're number one on the call sheet and they tell you to do something, then you do that. Because uh, if you don't, you will die. Uh, yes, and, and, and that's and that's what happened there. But the but the other thing um, that I think was important to to mention was that they they spent a lot of time um, setting up the red shirt thing. And and so, of course, they were going to they were going to pull the subterfuge because it was and it's it, it, it is something that I said on Twitter on on Zaki's page. Um, but it, this episode uh, was probably the most Easter eggy season premiere of anything I've ever seen. Mm. Um, you know, they were yeah. I mean, they were just Easter eggs abound. Uh, so you you get the red shirt thing where uh, Captain Pike tells commander non to get her red shirt on because she's coming with us on this dangerous mission uh so so you're like okay i know what that is we've got uh saru and uh and burnham on the way to the transporter to welcome the boarding party from from the enterprise uh onto the discovery asking burnham or, or burnham asking uh Saru, if Saru had any family when they were having their conversation and, and Saru says, oh, I've got a sister, um, which we now know about because we watched The Brightest Star short trek. Right. Uh, the the uh, the fortune that was left in an old in old Lorca's uh, ready room was was a callback. Wasn't that a callback to Desperate Hours? Oh hey, uh, that's that's definitely going to be a discussion point. Right. Oh, sorry. No problem. Yeah. Just just telling you. Yeah. Just telling you. <laughs> okay. Um. But you know, so I mean, they were just there were Easter eggs abound, and I think that with the red shirt one, it was just like, hey, hey guys, we're 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 truckers too. You know, we're we're fans of this franchise, uh, and we just want to let you know it's in good hands, and and you know, just buckle up and enjoy the ride. So, uh, kudos to them. Excellent. Rachel, what did you think of uh, Lieutenant Connolly's fate? I really like that he got killed while mansplaining. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So that was just a little schadenfreude on my part. Just like, ha 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 ha, yeah, you should have listened to Michael. Yeah, yeah, probably should have. Well said. Zachy? Yeah, no, I'm, I'll co-sign what Rachel said. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. And I saw after the fact too that um, there was a there's a blue-shirted crew member on the cage that uh, people think that Lieutenant Connolly might have been. Huh. No, no confirmation to that as of yet. But I'll be interested to see if that's something that the show establishes. Well. We also get a little more service to the Stamets Culber relationship, even though the good doctor is still dead, as far as we know. What did you guys make of Stamets' desire to leave behind Discovery? 
Did you find the emotion of the scene easy to get caught up in? Or does this feel like it's planting a possible seed of diversion? Zachy, what do you think? Um, I, I mean, I, I have to imagine that, that, that it's just planting a seed, you know, I, I don't think that particular storyline is over mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I tend to agree. Rachel, did you get caught up in this or do you think it's just kind of telegraphing something that will be bigger later? I mean, it's, I think it's trying to remind us that Stamets exists because he has some part to play later. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I got from it. Yeah, sure. Cicero. Yeah, I mean, I I guess it can be both, right? Because, uh, yeah, sure, I bought into it. Like his his the you know the love of his life died on this ship. There, like he said, he's everywhere he he goes. So he wants yeah. to escape that. That makes sense. But also, yeah. uh, Stamets just got promoted. He's a commander now, and uh, that character needs to be around for a while. So of course he's going to be around for a while, and they'll figure out yeah. a way to make that happen. Yeah, I, I certainly hope that they're not uh, th- that this isn't leading to some unforeseen exit, but I seriously doubt that that's the case. But yeah, I got caught up in it. I mean, it was a very understandable perspective, so I don't. I, I certainly can't fault uh, anyone for wanting to portray it this way. It's, it's understandable. I mean, how could, anyone with a heart, I think you could get caught up in it. That's for sure. So moving along with the plot, getting aboard the Hiawatha, Pike, Burnham, and Nan find engineer Jet Reno nursing the last survivors of the crew and keeping them alive through very inventive uses of the ship's systems. All are transported back to the Discovery, but a problem on board causes Burnham to be stranded. Briefly, she has a vision of a figure walking through a red silhouette with bony protrusions that resemble wings while she's on the asteroid. And visibly coming to grips with what she sees, she's abruptly saved by Pike and safely returned to Discovery. Not before attempting to grab an asteroid fragment that Tilly requested, but that fragment failed to dematerialize with her. Discussing the ship's forthcoming mission with Captain Pike in the now former ready room of Captain Lorca's, she learns that Pike will be staying aboard Discovery to investigate the remaining red bursts. Burnham also discusses with Pike their shared acquaintance, Spock, as Pike tells Burnham that Spock took leave and is no longer aboard the Enterprise. Well, first things first, what did you guys make of Engineer Reno? I don't think Tignataro missed a beat with that, even though she expressed some nervousness. I think was she on either the Colbert show or Conan and talking about how she had trouble getting around the dialogue that she was given, but... Cicero, as the uh, resident big Tignataro fan, what did you make of this? Oh, she was awesome. Uh, it, it was it was fantastic. Uh, it, I was a little disappointed that as once we got back to Discovery, we didn't see her again. Uh, but I'm hoping that she's around at least for a while. So, uh, yeah, she was awesome. Yeah, we haven't seen... Uh, a chief engineer on, on board discovery. So who knows, maybe there's potential there. Zachy, what'd you think of engineer Reno? She was fun. You know, she reminded me of her intro reminded me of Scotty's intro in the, in the oh, yeah. movie. Yeah. Good point. Uh, I got, I got uh, shades of that, you know, kind of just stuck there and making the most of it. And we very quickly get a sense of just how, how uh, uh, gifted mm-hmm. she is. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Rachel, Engineer yeah. Reno. It's too bad if she won't be in more episodes because I feel like the the show is really missing that kind of wizard engineer of yeah. the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And she, I, I liked how, uh, you know, she basically alluded to the body as a machine and that's how she's able to rig all that stuff up. You right. know, it's just a matter of reading because she can read in order to do that stuff. No, I got a big kick out of her. I, I, I certainly hope that she shows up more in the future. I, I seem to remember, or at least I thought I remembered that we haven't actually seen main engineering on the on the starship discovery yet we've just seen an engineering lab right so who knows maybe that's a location we'll see and maybe she'll be the one to to be the chief i i certainly wouldn't be against it uh we also got our first glimpse of the red angel and it seemed to have quite an effect on burnham we don't have much to go on with this brief appearance but what did you guys make of the way that the red angel was portrayed and again, how did this interaction make you feel, if anything? Rachel? It made me feel curious, Chris. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, like, what, what is that? Yeah. I would like to watch more episodes of Discovery <laughs> to find out. I don't know. I thought maybe, like, the Red Angel is some sort of consciousness that was, like, try- it set up these, like, beacon points trying to draw people there i don't know like it seems like it drew them there to help the hiawatha right that's what it could seem like that's one possible interpretation yeah so that's my hypothesis right now sure zaki the red angel what do you make of it this early on or do you have much to make of it no i mean you know yeah like rachel i mean it's yeah it's a it's an intriguing thread let's see uh let's see where Mm -hmm. they go with it cicero the red angel you have any major thoughts on it I suspect that the Red Angel and Commander Spock are intertwined somehow. Hmm. Hmm. Intertwined. Fascinating to steal a word. (laughs) We'll have to keep an eye on it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really get much of an indication about the Red Angel so far, but I think that's by design. Uh, I I did think that it was... uh, it was noteworthy that, you know, the, the closest that we got to seeing uh, more detail on the Red Angel, that's when Pike showed up immediately. Uh, I wonder if there's a, there's a sort of symbolic thread about the Red Angel possibly representing a kind of salvation. Uh, but that's also, I, I understand that that's kind of intertwined with the ideas of faith that I know that the season's going to be exploring. So I don't know. I, I definitely need more information about what the red angel is doing, what it means and how the characters themselves will interpret it. Uh, not the least of whom being Michael and Spock. I think those are going to be the ones that drive things forward the most. All right. Pedantic continuity time. Well, not really. I just wanted to pat the writers on the back with their allusion to Captain Pike's future while tying it to the lingering presence of Captain Lorca. The fortune, as Cicero alluded to before, not every cage is a prison, not every loss eternal. Since this is the prime universe, we know the fate that awaits Christopher Pike. What did you guys make of this allusion? Uh, And how do you think the captain's future could play into the way that he's portrayed over the course of the season? Zaki, what first of all, what did you think of of the fortune itself when you first saw it, and uh, and how do you think it's the the knowledge of the captain's future is going to play? I mean, it it struck me very clearly as an allusion to what's going to happen to him, and I, it's meant to 
add this it's it's meant to do it kind of what i said earlier you know we we spent this whole hour adventuring with captain pike and really being excited and then we get this little thing that you know he reads it and we know what it means and right. he doesn't and uh, you know it's meant to kind of just be this little poke uh where we're like you know n- not every star trek story is a happy ending i mean i think i think that's what's uh, you know, wh- while we were talking, I, I was pulling up. Uh, I, I pulled up Captain Pike's page on Memory Alpha and just looking at, you know, what ends up happening to him. And that's what strikes me is that uh, his, the way he, he is ultimately, uh, you know, uh, crippled for life, is is reflected in what we see here. He does here in this episode what we know he's going to do later. That's going to end up costing him. Uh, his his uh, yeah. mobility. Yeah. How does you know. he get crippled? He so so he's he's on a freighter where the the plating ruptures and there's a radiation leak. So he's basically dragging cadets uh, out of the danger area, but the radiation. He's bombarded by delta rays that basically leave him unable to move or communicate except via. Okay. Beeps. Yeah. I mean, I I knew that he was in a beep machine. <laughs> yeah. And he's like disfigured by yeah, the rays. Yeah, like... So he he's doing you know exactly what he does for Burnham, right? He burn he beams back to get her. Like that's that's the the characterization that's that's carried through, and I think yeah. that's really cool. That is really cool. Yeah, very much so. Cicero, uh, now I I know that it's I can't I I think you and I spoke about the it's that it's been a while since the last time you watched TOS. I don't know right. when the last time you watched the Menagerie was, but. I know that you definitely had an inkling of what Captain Pike's future is going to be. Yes. So how did how did this how did this make you feel? Uh, I, I mean, so immediately, how it made me feel was comforted. Um, mm. and and the only reason I say that is because the writers knew exactly what they were doing when they oh, did sure. that. Huh. And uh, again, as I said earlier. This was their way of telling longtime fans and critics that we know what we're doing. We know the source material. Yeah. We've got this. Just trust us. And um, and um I think for you know, for those naysayers, for those people that are on the fence, because you know, the, you're you're always gonna get a group of haters. I one of the things that I did while we were off uh, during our break um, to engage with Trek was engage with this podcast again and listen to some of the insights that, that I'm able to glean from you guys week in and week out. And one of the things that we were, uh, we sat and we talked about was, is, you know, how there is a group of people that will say, uh, this Trek isn't Trek and Enterprise wasn't Trek because it was the last Trek and it was so different. And Deep Space Nine isn't Trek because it's not like my Trek, you know, and, and you know, TNG wasn't Trek. So Discovery is now getting its turn to be unlike the others. And uh, for a subsection of people, that will always be the case. But for those people that are on the fence, please play them this part and tell them to come in because... These are the moments that will reassure you as a Trek fan, as a longtime Trek fan, who who you feel like the people that now have your franchise that you hold so dear don't understand and don't love it as much as you do. 
that's that's why I feel comforted by that. Excellent point. Very well said. I I'm not surprised at, at your insight and your expression of it. So thank you for sharing it with us. Rachel, how did this make you feel when you saw the four? Because you actually pointed it out to me. I didn't really realize exactly what uh, what it might have been saying. And then I backed it up and read it and went, holy crap. But in the moment, what did uh, this do I for you? I was like, wow, that's like a real life magic fortune cookie. <laughs> it actually told his fortune. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I don't remember having any specific feelings other than it added to my positive feelings of the episode because like Sister said it, there was a lot of kind of inside baseball sort of references and this was one of them. And so it made me feel very special and happy because I got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it made me sad. Uh, there's no, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, all of you guys are absolutely correct in, in your estimations of what this moment meant. Uh, just for the character and for the franchise at large. Um, I, I also appreciate the fact that um, that it alludes to a less than happy ending because it's all of that knowledge in the moment for, for those of us who know what happens to Captain Pike, the experience of the episode is automatically and instantly juxtaposed with the, the fate that we know awaits him. Uh, even though he gets... He, he gets his own sense of a happy ending, uh, ultimately, but they, he goes through a hell of a road to get there. Right. And, um, so I, as a, as a longtime TOS fan and as someone who has wanted to see more of Captain Pike explored in the franchise, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a little story in, it must've been 1996. I think it was early 96. Star Trek was celebrating its 30th anniversary and I was visiting my grandparents' house in Tehachapi, California. And I got a, uh, I like had my own money. I spent, I think like 20 bucks and I got the Galileo shuttlecraft that Playmates put out that came with a, where no man has gone before Captain Kirk figure. Mm. So it had like a cage style uniform. But while I was at the Kmart in Tehachapi, I saw that they were also selling a Captain Pike figure from the cage in the same Playmates series. And I bugged the hell out of my grandma because I was like, no, oh, they've got the same uniforms. I've got to have both of them so they could both go into the shuttlecraft and I could do my <laughs> my landing party adventures. And <laughs> I looked at my grandma and she said, if we go, will you be quiet? <laughs> will you be quiet if we go? And I said, yes, yes, I'll be quiet if we go. So I, I was being an obnoxious six-year-old child and got a Captain Pike figure. But ever since I had that figure and I was playing with the the Kirk in that shuttlecraft Galileo, I, had, I think I had seen the cage maybe once on TV back then. And I knew even then I wanted to see more adventures of this guy. And uh, 23 years later, we're now finally getting the chance to, and we're getting a chance to at the behest of a creative team that understands the history and his history in the franchise. That's a really cool opportunity. And I don't think it's going to be wasted. Uh, Discovery created an immense sense of confidence in me as a Star Trek fan over the course of its first season. 
and I see no reason to uh, to think that it's going to do anything other than justice to Christopher Pike. Potentially more justice than we've even seen done before, just by, as Zachy alluded to, the wealth of experiences we're about to have with him. So I'm very excited, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> But uh, so one final point in the plot before uh, before we're dismissed to the next week. Before Discovery disembarks, Burnham visits the damaged Enterprise to investigate Spock's quarters. She discovers that he had been having nightmares of the Seven Signals and is horrified to learn that her foster brother is out alone investigating these phenomena. So Burnham seems genuinely concerned for Spock here, but also seems to hold him in an immensely high regard, even given what we know of their past relationship. So let's wind this down, guys, with the revelations we learned in this episode and everything we learned in season one about Burnham and everything we've been learning about Spock over the course of the past five decades. What is the deal between Burnham and Spock? Just a very basic question to you guys. <laughs> What's the deal between Burnham and Spock? Rachel, start us. Oh, I don't know. Probably some sort of like family sh- with Sarek. <laughs> very interesting. Say more. <laughs> I don't know. Like maybe they. I. I have no idea, Chris. I'm just. I'm just riffing here. You just. You just along for the ride. Something happened, obviously, in in the past, and mm-hmm. they. They're gonna address it later. Well, the reason that I ask it this way specifically is because of the apparent reverence. Like that's something that genuinely surprised me, even when she's a child. She looks at him with a degree of reference, but uh, Saru points out how nervous she is when she thinks she's about to see him for the first time in God knows how many years. Obviously, we know that Sarek hasn't seen Spock in a really long time and potentially won't see him for years to come if they hold that their next interaction is going to be Journey to Babel. Uh, Zaki, what do you think is the deal between Burnham and Spock? Obviously, there's a complicated history between the two, but if you had to guess, just given what we know now, what do you think? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think part of it could well be the dichotomy between them where um, we know that Spock had a fractious relationship with Sarek, and we know that Michael does not, uh, even now, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think there's something to the fact that we have a human child who has in many ways chosen a Vulcan approach to life, and then you have a Vulcan child who is disobeying his father. And so there's that sense of, of, I mean, we see it alluded to already, Mm -hmm. right? Like Amanda is happy to have a human child to take care of. Obviously she loves Spock, but there's, there's something there, you know, he, she's reading to her and, and we see Spock looking on, like maybe this is something that's missing from Mm -hmm. his life. And so I can see it obviously they're deliberately seeding this in such a way where they want it to play out. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was at the heart or, or, or at least part of the heart of, of whatever, um, you know, the, the, the issue Mm. is between. Yeah, sure. That's a more articulate version of what I was trying to say. Okay. (laughs) Always leave. (laughs) 
<laughs> Cisco, what do you think is going on between these two? Uh, I know that you, you, you've gravitated a lot towards Michael over the past, you know, year plus. Right. So, you know, seeing, and obviously you like Spock. So what do you think the deal is with, uh, with their relationship, given what you know about both parties? So, uh, the first thing I'll say is that, uh, what Zaki said is probably the most plausible. The one thing that I will say is that uh, in the animated series, Spock said that his mother used to read Lewis Carroll to him as a child. Uh, mm. So maybe she didn't read Alice in Wonderland and maybe she read some of his other books. Uh, mm. And, and that's why like maybe he wanted to, maybe he wanted Amanda. Spock wanted Amanda to read Alice in Wonderland to to, to him, like she was doing to Burnham. I don't know. <laughs> I doubt it's it's that petty. Uh, the one thing that I hope it is not is uh, that uh, you know we've often made uh, or many people have made uh, kind of parallels, drawn parallels between uh, Discovery, the style of Discovery, and Game of Thrones. Uh, let's mm-hmm. hope uh, that oh, uh, we are we are not dealing with uh, some uh, sibling uh, romantic relationships. Um, mm, so, and, 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 and right, I, I don't. Think, I don't think I'm it'll be that. that. It's not. Um, there were there were definitely times where where the conversation between Burnham and Sarek was such that it led me to believe that 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 wasn't off the table. Um, oh, the you there is something unsaid. Yeah, um, about you know about their relationship, and uh, and I'm not saying that it's sexual in nature, but but it but romantic in nature. Um, that mm-hmm. there that that there was a fondness for each other, uh, in in more so than than being siblings. Uh, point po- point of fact when uh, Saru asked or uh, said oh your doesn't your brother serve on the enterprise burnham was quick to uh correct him and say force the brother that's true so um I, I i'm not thinking that it's sexual but i wouldn't be shocked if it wasn't romantic that's a really interesting point i had honestly not considered that uh honestly the the, the angle that i've been focusing on i've just kind of been moving in my head back and forth between everything that we know about Spock's relationship specifically with his father mm-hmm. in multiple universes, right. no less. Uh, because the Kelvin timeline conception of Spock and Sarek's relationship, even though we only saw it in that first movie, seems very different than what we've seen in the Prime universe. Well, wasn't that actually uh, in the Prime universe? No. No, it wasn't because uh, uh, the arrival of Nero, I think immediately, it either coincided or immediately predated Spock's birth. Mm. Let's see, 2233. Spock was probably an infant when it happened, if I'm remembering correctly, but uh, most- yeah, because because Spock and Kirk are roughly yeah, the okay. same age. So so he he uh. was really small, but uh, I mean something. Just the way that they sort of leaned on each other, particularly after the death of Amanda in uh, in the 2009 film, and the way that Sarek spoke to Spock uh, when he was a child seemed like it was much more sort of reassuring 
than than we'd seen at least intimated in examples of the prime timeline. But then, you know, you you, you examine up and down the prime timeline, the relationship between Spock and Sarek, and the best that it probably got, I guess maybe during the movies, uh, when they were talking on a more regular basis. I mean, arguably Sarek was the most effusive in his love of Spock when he uh, went out of his way to help make sure that Spock would live again. Sarek was a pretty important part of that, but uh, the best. Well, and, and their, the, their uh, conversation at the end of Star Trek four is sort of puts a button on, you know, what we've, what the journey that began for audiences with journey to Babel. Yes. Yes. Where, they're at peace with each other, you know, tell her I feel fine. And it's, this is, this is a whole Spock who has learned to embrace both sides. And that's reflected in, in how he is with yeah, his father. His father has accepted him. Excellent you know? point. Yeah. And that's, that's absolutely the case. But then, you know, examining the, the tragedy that would become of that even uh, by the time of the 24th mm. century, uh, even something as potentially, I mean, I don't want to say it's trivial because it, it wasn't really trivial, but an ambassadorial dispute, I think, over the Cardassians is what pushed them apart again and drove Spock to Romulus. And uh, and then he never saw his father again and didn't really begin huh. to fully comprehend the love that Sarek did have for Spock until that mind meld with Captain Picard. At least that's what it looked like. Um, Spock looked very overcome with emotion when he met the mind of Captain Picard in that instance. So we know we have the benefit of understanding something that at this point in Spock's life, he does not. And that is that his father loves him immensely. And uh, so there is a degree of tragedy when you look at the relationship between Spock and Sarek and how that could correlate to the relationship between Spock and Michael. Like I said before, I hope it's not the, the, the reasoning that the show ultimately gives for Spock never having mentioned Michael, I really hope it's not just rooted in resentment. I hope they take us a, uh, a more interesting and potentially even more complicated path than that. But uh, there's a lot of meat here. I don't know what the deal is. Cicero certainly has an interesting hypothesis that I didn't think of before, <laughs> but, uh, but th this is to me where most of the meat of the season is going to be. I'm really looking forward to seeing Captain Pike, but having a new opportunity to add to the life of the franchise's most iconic pillar character, that's exciting to me. I don't see that as threatening at all. I see that as nothing but an opportunity. So, guys, final thoughts uh, of Season 2, Episode 1, something that um, maybe we didn't mention in the discussion if you've had a thought about it. Rachel, what are your final thoughts of the episode and what do you think it portends for the season? The, the back 10 minutes of the episode were way too crowded and fast for me. I just wanted to point that out. Okay, <laughs> fair <laughs> like, enough. There yep. were some pacing issues with the writing that it just crammed too much stuff into the, into the, like, the last half of the episode, I guess. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. But you're looking forward to things generally? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Just I that made me worry because that's what they did at the end of last right, season too. Right. So it's like there seems to be a recurring thing with these writers where they sort of mm -hmm. run out speed of through plot points in a way that doesn't <laughs> feel like they're letting you know let the plot breathe a little bit, right. please. 
Well, and it's, they said as much that they're working backwards from the way that they wanted the season to end. So yeah. hopefully that'll make for a better landing this time. Cause I think we all thought that the season finale last time was a little bit clunky, but uh, Cicero final thoughts on the season premiere and uh, thoughts on the season going forward. Um, those uniforms snazzy. I, yeah. I, I really like those. Those were really, really nice. And of course, really quick one, quick one-liner. Explain their new uniforms. Boom, done. Um, you know, well, there's a question down the line about whether or not uh, the Discovery crew, if we get additional seasons, will uh, convert over uh, to those u- new uniforms. But we'll we'll ask that later. Um, the other big takeaway from from this was we lament the the loss of the of the movies potentially uh but damn the effects in this on this show are are i I mean we don't need big budget big screen uh trek because we've got movie quality trek right here the stunts in the second half that moved at a breakneck speed was were just fantastic that that entire scene where they're you know they're flying the the ships through the asteroid field when Connolly bites mm-hmm. it uh the effects there were were fantastic uh Burnham yes. running through the fire um you know sitting sitting still on the on the ship I mean all of that stuff was just amazing yeah very true good points yeah Zachy final thoughts on this episode and thoughts on the season going forward uh, it's a solid start, and uh, let's boldly go. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Um, my final thoughts, I guess. Uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing the these sort of cage characters and enterprise characters. But honestly, I'm so relieved that this show is back because I do love the characters that this show specifically introduced, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm looking forward to spending more time with them. I love all the people that perform the roles. And, uh, you know, it's top-notch AAA production, so to speak. So I think there's a lot to look forward to over the course of season two of Star Trek Discovery. And uh, Prime Lorca lives, too, by the way. So Prime Lorca lives. All right. Well, that is going to do it for episode 33 of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you were to review for the show on iTunes or Facebook. It only takes a minute and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when when it is posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes as we barrel forward with regular discussions over the course of season two of Star Trek Discovery. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. 